I think part of it is we have this stereotype that men are self-important, arrogant people, and really they kind of are. But it turns out being self-important and arrogant, you don't use I words much. In fact, we all use I words when we're kind of uh, anxious, self-reflective. When we're looking inward, we're being honest. Mm. Just the opposite of what we think I words are. Welcome to the Lucas Grobot Show, where we uncover purpose, relentlessly pursue truth, and own the future. I'm your host, Lucas Scrobot, and today we are joined by Dr. James Pennebaker. Dr. Pennebaker is the Regents Centennial Professor of Liberal Arts and Professor of Psychology. He and his students are exploring natural language use, group dynamics, and personality in both the laboratory and the real world settings. His earlier work on expressive writing found that physical health and work performance can improve by simple writing and or talking exercises. His cross-disciplinary research is related to linguistics, clinical and cognitive psychology, communication, medicine, and computer science. Author and editor of 12 books and over 300 articles, Dr. Pennebaker has received numerous research and teaching awards and honors. He received his PhD from the University of Texas at Austin in 1977, and some of his notable books are The Secret Life of Pronouns, which we're going to be talking about, and Opening Up by Writing It Down. Dr. Pennebaker, thank you so much for being with us here on the show. It's good to be here. Now, I, I've i been reading your book. I've been going through your material. And I, I wanted to start with a, a question. How did you, as a, a social psychologist, decide to, to dive deep into researching, you know, people's words and diving through masses amounts of text and articles. It seems like a, a quite of a, a, a boring idea on the onset of it. What was that, that original story that got you into researching language? Well, I should tell you, if, if someone had come to me in high school and said, Jamie, in 40 years from now, you're going to be studying articles and prepositions and auxiliary verbs, I'd go... <laughs> Oh, no, what happened? Where did I go wrong? Um, it was That was not a, the direction I was planning. I was fascinated by psychology. I've always been interested in what makes us tick. Why do we do what we do? And I got into it, and early on, I became, you know, a little bit appalled that so much of social psychology was based on questionnaires. Mm. We didn't look at what people were actually doing. We just asked them what they thought they were doing. Which, which is a horrible uh, way to get information out of people. It is. It, you know, it, it's based on the theories we have about ourselves. I think I'm a really warm, compassionate person, even though I might kick my dog and be horrible to my wife and kids or whatever. What's important to me was, was real-world behavior, mm. and measuring it was always difficult. So I actually had ended up studying how people cope with traumatic experiences, and I had discovered that um, people who have major traumas in their lives, could be, and they could be almost anything, we know is associated with their getting sick. So physical health is a marker of dealing with, with upheavals, but... 
I discovered that people who had major upheavals that they kept secret had far more health problems. Mm. In other words, keeping big secrets is really unhealthy for you. And, and what I discovered later was that if I brought those people in the laboratory and had them write about these big secrets, their health improved. Mm. And this is what this expressive writing idea was. And I ended up doing a number of studies. And, and I kept wondering, why is it writing or talking about something upsetting is good for your health? And I had published my first papers on this, and uh, other labs were interested. And the question now was, well, why is this true? And the answer turns out to be, uh, depends on different factors. But that could be another episode. But it occurred to me, maybe the secret was looking in at the way they were writing. Maybe it was the topics they were writing or whatever. And so I had a bunch of clinical psychology graduate students read these essays. And people were writing about the most traumatic experiences of their lives. And there were lots of essays. And I asked, these, asked the students to rate these, you know, to what degree is it coming to terms with it? Do they seem to understand themselves, et cetera? And what I found was that it was really, it took forever for the students to do it. Reading these really horrible, sad stories mm. depressed the students. So they were almost worthless because they were so burned out by it. And they didn't agree that on the dimensions at all. And so I thought, well, I'll just get a computer program to analyze, analyze what they're writing about. And this was in the Seems in the simple 1990s. enough, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I went to to a bookstore to buy a computer program that analyzed language. And they looked at me to say, we don't have anything like that. And so I started calling around and there didn't seem to be one. And then I started calling some linguists and they didn't, you know, they all thought it was a good idea. Then I called computer scientists and they didn't, couldn't help me. So mm. I thought, well, hell, I took Fortran in college. How hard can it be? So fortunately <laughs> I had a, uh, a graduate student, Martha Francis, whose background had been in computer science, and I had a good idea how I thought it would the computer program would work. And I said, you know, Martha, this will just take you know probably two, three weeks at the most. And it turned out it took a lot longer than that. But what I we came up with was this computer program called LUC, L-I-W-C, which stands for Linguistic Inquiry and Word Count. And um, and I, with it, we were able to go in and analyze how people were writing. And we did, in fact, find some fingerprints of who benefited and who didn't. And um, what was interesting was it wasn't the, the content of what people were writing that was important. It was the way they were writing. Mm. And, and, and then all of a sudden, you know, I hear we had this program and I started, this was just about the time that the internet was coming on online. And every night I'd start downloading data that was coming. So uh, if you're above a certain age, you've heard of, of America Online, but AOL had these things called chat groups. Unbelievable. Oh, yeah. People from all over the world would be on these chat groups. And there were chat groups for, you know, for fishing, for sports, for dating for everything and i just start downloading them each night and then i'd start analyzing them and see if i can see differences between men and women between uh, this group and that group 
And I started seeing some things that made no sense. And um, and every so, for example, the first thing with differences between men and women. And I thought, well, um, you know, everybody knows, you know, you could guess what the differences would be. Uh, men would use I words more, I thought. Uh, women would use emotion words more. Women would definitely use we words more. Mm. Men would uh, would be more logical uh, and use you know cognitive words and so forth. Anyway, everything I believed and most what most people even today believe. Right. Those are those are all things. If I would think, okay, what? How do men talk versus how do women talk? Those are going to be the stereotypical things that r- run through my mind. That, and and everybody believes that. And it's all wrong. It turns out women use I words at much higher rates than men. And, you know, I, I, I did that first analysis that I thought, well, and this is science. Well, there you go. There's a, there's a fluky difference. I'm sure that uh, if I do it again with a different group, it won't hold up. That I did it with another group. And it came out the same way. Women use I words more than men do. Hmm. Well, you know, you can have two weird studies in a row. Then I did a third study, and it came out. And I started to read, why is this? Well, I think part of it is we have this stereotype that men are self-important, arrogant people. And really, they kind of are. But it turns out being self-important and arrogant, you don't use I words much. In fact, we all use I words when we're kind of uh, anxious self-reflective when we're looking inward we're being honest Mm. just the opposite of what we think i words are in any case i started finding differences with prepositions and auxiliary verbs and you know these these junk words that nobody cares about and it just fascinated me so it wasn't that i was interested in language and quite frankly i'm still not very interested in language but as a tool to understand people, it turned out to be a, an unbelievably rich source of information. Wow. That's a very long, very long answer. Well, you, you talk about in your book, you talk about this, these differences. And you mentioned here how you started examining people's articles. You know, if I was going about this, and it, it sounds like when you started off, you're doing this as well. I would be looking at, you know, people's descriptive words, you know, kind of like even uh, in in how they portray the Unabomber, how they broke that case. You know, they're looking at specific phrases that someone might use that might uniquely point to the identity of who they are. So I would, I would stereotypically think, okay, women are going to probably be using softer, more descriptive language. Um, men are going to be talking more about things and um, in more analytic ways. But, but instead of going towards the the nouns the descriptive words you said no i'm going to focus on the articles and in your book you you describe how even nouns the way we process that happens in a different part of our brain than we would do articles and maybe even for for those who have forgotten all of their english um grammar um what what are the differences between nouns and articles pronouns like how how are you def- separating those and then where and why do we process those in different areas of our brain? So, one, there's a million ways you can slice and dice language. And, you know, I still have PTSD from high school English. You know, mm. 
you know, trying to figure out the different parts of speech and wondering why in the world did I ever have to learn this stuff. Another way to slice and dice it is uh, there are kind of two types, very broadly two types of words. There are words that convey content, and then there are words that seem to be just kind of those filler words that uh, help to make language flow more smoothly. So, for example, I am holding a pen. So there are two content words there, holding and penned. And the other words are I'm a, and, and that's it. So in that situation, we have two content words or uh, and two or three uh, junk words. We don't call them junk words. These junk words are really called function words. And they serve to, and so I am a pen. So I am and the word a, those words are all very brief. And in, in virtually all languages, they have words like this. There are, we have a vocabulary of almost a hundred thousand words. And of those hundred thousand words, almost all of them are nouns, regular verbs and adjectives and, and most adverbs. In other words, are really rich in content. However, these little junk words, they are pronouns like I, me, you, he, it, prepositions, to, of, for, articles, a, n, and the, and a few others. These junk words, these function words, in English, it's only about maybe 200 common ones. Whereas the rest of our vocabulary, the other 99,900 or 800 words are content words which means that these content words, each one we use very, very rarely, whereas we have to use these same uh, function words over and over and over again. Mm. And, and you can think of them as building blocks. And because they're so common, they're really easy for me to analyze. So uh, to give you an example, in our brief discussion so far, I haven't been uh, but probably 65% of all the words I've used have been function words. And as I now, I ask you, have I used a high rate of articles? How about prepositions? How about pronouns? You've got no idea. No idea. I've got no idea. No idea. And one reason you can't do it is because they're processed really differently. We are, as we are speaking, as we're listening, uh, we are listening. What is the content of the speech here? And if I say uh, I am holding the pen or a pen, you won't notice the difference. But it's the difference is slight and it changes the meaning. So if I said I'm holding the pen, you'd be your brain would assume that we you already know about the pen, because if I say the pen, I'm referring to a specific pen. But and but the point with all of this is. We process these function words very, very quickly, and they're processed in one area of the brain, and the content words are processed in another part of the brain. And so our conscious awareness of the content words, we have more access to that, whereas we don't have access to these function words. And where are these interesting? Where are these where are these function words processed? What part of the brain and what other functions happen in that same part of the brain? So Oh, um, this turns out to be a, a, little, a more complicated question that I, I 
would have liked. But we know from brain damage studies uh, that these that different parts of the brain seem to be relevant. So if you look at the, the brain, so most people, their, their uh, brain function, their language functions are on the left side of the brain, not everybody, but most. And they different functions that go in the, in the frontal area, which is the frontal and the temporal lobe, and right there in the middle is, is a more heavy language area, which is referred to as Wernicke's area. And the more frontal area is Broca's area. And what's interesting is Broca's area is related to uh, not only uh, function word processing, but also emotional, often emotional issues, nonverbal issues. Mm. Uh, whereas Wernicke's area, which is right smack in the middle of the temporal area, is related to hardcore lang language processing. So, for example, if there's damage to Wernicke's area, and I'm asked to describe what's on the in front of me. I would probably say, uh, "Well, it's uh, uh, this is right here, and right there is that part, and then behind there, there's a you know that the little deal there." I'd be using words that are essentially almost all function words. Mm. Whereas if I had damage to Broca's area. And just now, my the content, and I'm asked the same question. I'd say, uh, computer, black computer, uh, sitting, uh, screen, and um, and the words would almost be all would all content words. But I'd also not have any social skills. I'd be speaking in a slow, painful, descriptive way. Whereas with damage to my uh, Wernicke's area. My Broca's area is working just fine, and I look you in the eye. I speak to you in a really, you know, a, a warm social kind of way. In other words, my social skills are intact, but my ability to convey hard information is not. Well, when I read that in your book, I was so fascinated because it you did it. It's not just something that's unique to the English language, but you, you, you've done these studies in Arabic and um, other languages as well. And, and you point out the fact that that in that Broca's area, that that is more unaccessible to us. And so when we're learning a language at an older age, it is difficult to acquire that language, not because we can't memorize a bunch of descriptive words or subject words, um, but because it's hard to put those articles into Broca's area and know how to put it all together, how to where all the screws go into the sentence. And I have found that to be true, that I I can know a bunch of vocabulary, and I do, but oftentimes putting together with the right conjunctions, with the right, um, uh, you know, pronouns and all that to put it together into something that's, you know, fluent, that is very difficult for me as, as not a native Arabic speaker. Um, and so when I heard that, that made so much sense. And then in your book, you go on to say how that the the, the language that comes out of the Broca's area is almost like this subconscious language that we can't really control. It just kind of happens. It comes out and it almost exposes what's actually going inside our, our heads, our hearts. And it's almost like a litmus test that um, it's something that we can't control as much, whereas we can control 
the whether we're you know really being intentional to not use um, harsh, angry language or depressed language. Um, that I found really fascinating. It, 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 I, me too. I, and I found it almost magical. It, you know, and one good example of this is when people lie versus telling the truth is we don't sit down before we're about to tell a lie and say, okay, I'm going to use this kind of language. We just start talking. If one thing that we often do when we are caught in a situation where we have to be deceptive, you know, it could be interpersonal or whatever. What we do is we psychologically put what we're saying away from us, which means we often don't use the word I. So uh, if I'm asked, uh, uh, where were you yesterday afternoon at two o'clock? And at yesterday at two o'clock, I was at a, uh, you know, I was at a bar getting drunk and, um, and my employer better not know or whatever. And, and I'll say, oh, yesterday afternoon at two, yeah, that was a time um, the uh, the library was was uh, closed and um, and uh, it, it but uh, and and I would use words where I would try not to use I. I would probably use we or just try to push it away. Whereas if I'm telling the truth, I'd say, well, uh, uh, yesterday I went to the library and I thought that I'd be able to get a book, but it turns out the library was closed. So instead I did this. And what happens when I'm telling the truth, I'll use a lot more I words. And I'll also use some words that are, that are called, um, they're kind of differentiators. They're words like except, but without, where you're saying not only what you did do, but what you didn't do. I did this, but then this happened. And that's too complex when you're when you are lying, and there are all these other things our our brain just does, kind of out of our control, so that we are kind of almost psychologically protecting ourselves. So we're in a weird way not lying to ourselves as much, but we don't have any awareness that we're doing it. Yeah, I thought that was I thought that was really interesting about the line as well. How. When when people are lying, they they're telling you what you did do, but they didn't. They have a very difficult time to tell you what they didn't not do, and and it's a very interesting point that when you know even in, in political situations or you know when we have we're sharing our ideas and our beliefs, oftentimes we're we're modifying using modifiers to to really help people understand where we sit on a specific position. So rather than just giving a blanket statement of, oh, I, I think this is, you know, the answer for whatever, you know, political, social situation, it's I think this is the answer, but there's these other complicated things and we have to look at it at, at a higher resolution. And so that I also found was really interesting as, as a, a telling um kind of a tell of when you're listening to someone or some, someone describe what they believe or a politician saying what they're going to do to even be able to be conscious. But are, I guess, are we able to be conscious to pick that up? Or is that too complex that we actually need to, you know, use computers to analyze um, someone's language to pick out what they're using? I think, um, people are notoriously bad at detecting deception. So in studies that people, there've been, you know, hundreds, thousands of studies on deception over the years. And if a person is talking to somebody and they don't know that they might be 
being deceived, we typically believe they're telling the truth. And if we're told we, we give a, we're given a bunch of videotapes and we're saying, OK, uh, some of these people are telling the truth, some are lying. What you find is that the average person will be able to identify the liars maybe 57% of the time, where 50% is chance. And if they're just looking at the written script, it's, they don't do as well. It's like 53% versus 50%. Uh, and if you are a real, real expert uh, and you're looking at these nonverbals at the videotape, you might get you know, you might get up to 60% accuracy. In other words, humans are really, really bad at it. And a computer does better. It doesn't do great. In our studies, it's, we can do usually 67%, sometimes as high as 72% the highest I've ever gotten. And anybody who says they can do better than that, I'm, I, I would question. They're, they're liars. <laughs> they're a liar. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but it is, it's, very, very hard to do. And um, so, yeah, a computer makes it, it, it does make it easier. Now, you, you also write about in your book, and you've mentioned in here, even starting with the description of, of how men and women use, use pronouns, um, using I and we more. And can, you know, they're in, you know, Obama has been um, accused of using I a lot in his speeches, you know, when he gives a state of the union, you know, the, the headline afterwards is Obama used I, you know, X amount of times in the state of the union. And then the same goes with Trump. They normally say, well, Trump uses we, you know, X amount of times in the state of the union versus I. And at least from what I've, I've read on the news is that there there's, you know, vast differences between, um, the amount of use of I in in Obama's language versus the amount of use in of we in Trump's language. What are what are the reasons for that? Is that true? Um, since you go through and, and you've you've scraped the internet and actually analyzed all that language, and what does that point to in in a person's personality, what they're thinking, how they're how they're associating themselves with the group? So. I words are to me the most interesting. And one reason is in spoken language, the word I is the most common word used in English by quite a bit. Um, and we are horrible at knowing if somebody uses I at high rates. So keep in mind that I is associated with confidence. So, or uh, lack of confidence. So if you're insecure, if you are, um, not sure of what you're talking about, you would use I at high rates, just the opposite of what we think. And if you're confident, um, even arrogant, you use I words at very low rates. Obama, of all U.S. presidents, use I words the least. I mean, he does, he used I words hardly at all. Nevertheless, whenever he gave a talk, he would use I words maybe three or four times, which is essentially never. And the right-wing media the next day would, would, I remember reading, you know, an article by Peggy Noonan. I can't believe that self-centered guy. He used I more than I've ever heard. He used it three or four times. But when he said it, it was kind of like a slap across the face, you know, because it, it was so out of, out of out the ordinary uh, for him. Whereas George Bush used I all the time. 
So Trump's use of language is fascinating. He, uh, he uses I at very high rate. Uh, and in fact, um, which reflects the fact that I think he's, he's actually quite insecure, even though he speaks with bluster. Uh, you can tell that when somebody attacks him, he's, he just can't let it go. But there's another feature to language that is interesting. And this is, we have this dimension in language that we call analytic thinking, thinking in a, in a kind of normal, logical way. Mm. And uh, when Trump ran in 2016, we were doing a lot of analyses of him versus the other Republicans he was running against. And this analytic is this analytic measure is takes into account both pronouns, but also prepositions and articles. And we do a very good job at identifying how logical and formal a person's thinking is through their use of this language. And not surprisingly, uh, Trump's came out quite low. He was by far the lowest of everybody that was running and much, much lower than Hillary. And one of my students did this analysis and she says, you know, this is unbelievable that and uh, because it's also sometimes linked to intelligence, suggesting low intelligence. And so I said, well, let's look at how previous presidents have done. So she went and looked at five or six presidents. She came back. She said, there must be some mistake because Obama's is about the same level as Trump's. Hmm. And um, that is fascinating. It's really fascinating because she then goes and analyzes speech, uh, starting off with inaugural addresses, then states of the union addresses, and then presidential papers and everything, going back to George Washington. And what we found was, uh, if you look at George Washington in terms of how analytic he, he was in the early people, they were very analytic in terms of their numbers. And the numbers were pretty much flat until we get to about Teddy Roosevelt and, and then it started dropping and dropping in a linear fashion so that it's true, uh, Trump is the lowest ever. The next lowest is Obama and the ones below and just above that were uh, Bush, Reagan, Clinton and so forth. And what's happened in in the U.S. and when and she also found this for leaders of Great Britain, Canada, and Australia, is that with the growth of the the, the media and with the change in who votes, uh, presidents, the people who win, are speaking in simpler and simpler ways. And if you look at Obama and wow. uh, those who have read his work, he's there's no question he's incredibly smart, but the way he talks and writes is very simple. That the the candidates who are able to speak in a simple way are the ones who tend to win, and the ones who speak with confidence uh, often are the winners as well. So we're seeing these cultural, these fascinating cultural shifts that have been going on for a long time. So it's not. It's partly personality that the language is capturing, but it's also the way that these people are pandering to us, the voters. And we, the voters, are looking for people who speak simply and with great confidence, even if they have no knowledge of what they're talking about. If it's simple and confident, 
we're suckers. We're, we are voting for the Cheetos of, of politicians. That's fascinating. I, I not to be not to be harsh about Cheetos. <laughs> well, I I after thinking about this, I went today and I went to your website and I I pulled up Barack Obama's Twitter feed and I pulled up uh, President Trump's. Twitter feed as well. And I analyze them and you're right along, along that. If you look at their, their analytical thinking styles, uh, Trump is at 60 and Obama is at 71 over, you know, the last, however many tweets, um, that was pulled. But what I also found really interesting, I wanted to ask you about Obama under his emotional style, both of them, you know, Trump is very, very upbeat at 88, um, Obama is at 76. Um, Trump then, of course, meets his stereotype at angry with 48. But but pres- uh, President um, from, former President Obama is at 43. And then Obama weighs in depressed at 48. Is his is his second one, whereas President Trump is only down at 27. Why? So what's going on? What's going on with this graph? Why? Is your graph showing that the former president, uh, Obama, is depressed? Okay, just a second. Just a second here. Don't take this very seriously at all. Uh, Remember that we are looking, you're looking at tweets for crying out loud. Tweets. What the, what the hell's going on in our culture that tweets are a form of conversation? That's a great question. You're, you're so, the professor. I'm asking you. Yeah. Tweets are, they are a, a, a sign of, of how people are thinking. But the reality is, is uh, one should, if I were going to do any kind of research on a personality, yes, if tweets were available, by God, I'm there, I'm going to analyze it. Uh, however, please understand that Tweets, you are playing to the audience. This a tweet is not a conversation. A tweet is not self-reflection. I want I'm much more interested in once these people are alone in their rooms mm. and they're they're writing, they'll say right they're writing something for themselves or a personal note to somebody. That gives me a much better sense of of who they are. Mm. Now is uh is Obama depressed? No, a number a forty six is not depressed. <laughs> Give me an eighty, and and if it's been going on for a long time, you know, I would say it's very possible that 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 the, the person is um, that, that there are issues. So so again, these go these go from a scale from zero to a hundred. So forty six probably reflects some kind of who knows it could also just be talking about the economy and if you talk about the economy and use the word depression a lot uh that that's good to, to feed in i have no idea what these what these numbers reflect and going going off of you know tangent tangenting off of um depression and depressed you you studied a lot of poets who ended up committing suicide and you you started talking and studying depression 
and the amount of eyes that people use when they're suffering depression. What's going on there? In your book, you write out that there's a high correlation between the amount that someone uses I and the likelihood that they're actually suffering from depression. Why might that be? So it's interesting. There's actually one thing of depression that claims that depression is a disease of self-focus. That when a person is depressed, they are looking inward all the time, that, that they're, uh, they're in such pain that it's drawing their attention to look inward. Mm. Uh, and, and you see the same thing if you're physically sick. You know, you go back and look at your emails during periods when you were physically sick or depressed, and you'll see that your use of I words is higher. And so, and this is a, also a marker. When a person's depressed, they also ruminate a lot about and they're ruminating about themselves. They're ruminating about their health, their weight, their diet, their sleep, their this, their that. But when we're depressed, we are we are looking inward at very high rates, and our language follows that. Now, you you recently started a, a new project about COVID nineteen, which is you know as you just mentioned, sickness, illness that's sweeping the world. All of a sudden, we have um, isolation that's sweeping the world. You know. Everywhere across the world, people are now locked up in probably a lot of dysfunctional homes and stuck in dysfunctional relationships in the four walls. You can't get out. You can't go anywhere. Um, and it's having a tremendous impact on the the entire globe, um, economy, everything. But but you and your researchers decided to start scrolling through blogs, Twitter, I'm sure Facebook posts and starting to analyze language, and and you've done this before with major um, global events, but what are you seeing happen right now with with COVID-19, and what are some of the, the things that you guys are projecting of the impact that this might, the lasting impact that this might have on the global um, psychological health? Well, it's... Uh never trust anybody's projections about the future, <laughs> including mine. <laughs> um, That's wise advice. So um, I can tell you what's happened. So what we, some of our best data is actually from social media, specifically Reddit. I love Reddit. So for those listeners out there, if you, uh, if you don't know what Reddit is, just, just uh, go to your computer and you'll see that these are essentially modern day bulletin boards where people get in these discussions with one another and please make lots of comments on your reddits because I'm there studying them. But what's interesting about them is we've been looking at people in communities uh, in the United States. We have 18 cities that we've been tracking and we're interested in terms of how much they are using different types of words. And what we're finding is it's, uh, is that we're able to see the, giant jumps in anxiety, especially at the very beginning. And so none of us knew what was going to happen. We didn't know if we were going to die. We didn't know much of anything. And the economy is crashing at the same time. So some of these effects are probably the economy as well as the, the fear of COVID. So what we find are these big increases in anxiety, which have now come down not to what they were before COVID, but they're, they're, they're kind of manageable. Another interesting thing that happened, which goes against the, what you just said, was we found that almost as soon as COVID landed, 
Uh, whereas anxiety has gone has got went way up. Anger and expressions of anger dropped precipitously. Really? We find the same. Yeah, yes. And we're finding the same thing with surveys. We've been doing surveys in the United States, but also around the world. So in the first several weeks that, that we were all sitting together in homes, often in dysfunctional families, uh, anger and hostility dropped, it would, which uh, I found fascinating. It's very surprising. Now, that doesn't mean it's going to stay there. And in fact, we're, we've been seeing an increase in it in the last uh, – in the last week or two. But what this is pointing to is that what we see in an upheaval is right now is is somewhat unpredictable. What we saw in, so we're now three months into it. What we found was this big increase in anxiety and then it's dropped down. We saw this uh, drop in anger and then it's starting to come back up. And will it go up much higher? Uh, No idea. Uh, we're finding, and, and also the way we're connecting with others is very different. So think about um, other big events. And uh, I don't know where your listeners are from, but in virtually every country over the last 50 years, there have been a few major upheavals in that country. Uh, in the United States and elsewhere, 9-11 was a big one, and I did a lot of research on that. But there have been others as well. And one thing that happens almost always when there's a major upheaval is it brings people together. They spend Mm. more time with others. Mm. They go and talk with people in their homes, in your home, out in a park or whatever. And this is a natural way that we we, uh, work. Uh, 9-11, there was a tremendous amount of people go to memorial service together. It was, it really did. And if you ask people, they say it brought the culture together. We find this with natural disasters as well. This has been a weird one because you can't go and talk to others. And so you're stuck at home the entire time. And what we're finding is that in on Reddit and elsewhere, people report be feeling much closer to family. Well, they, that's good because their family's all around them. Yeah, yeah. And so there's a big, big increase in family, and then it's, it's dropping down some. In terms of how close we are to friends, we're not as close as we have been in the past because you're not seeing them. Uh, to how close do you feel to your city or community? It's actually actually pretty low. And in the United States, how close do you feel to your country? It's extremely low. In other words, here we are in this major upheaval, and we're not able to take advantage of our social networks the way that we have in others. Mm. And, that's what makes this one such an odd one. So we're very close to family, but less so to to others. And now one of the interesting questions, because we're moving now into this new stage, and depending on which country you you are, uh, you are now, it's as though, okay, everything's fine, although it it probably isn't. Or the country is saying, no, no, you need to stay in longer, which uh, makes your life miserable. So we're all kind of screwed no matter what happens. So what's going to happen in the future? Well, uh, we've, we've asked people this. We said, what do you think in two years? How How's your life going to be different than it was before COVID? And this has been kind of interesting. In the United States, we're finding people are saying, you know, I don't think I'm going to go to, to restaurants as much in two years as I did in the past. You know, I'm, and a lot of them are saying, 
you know, I've discovered that there's a kind of a sanity to this life that I've been leading. You know, I, I'm kind of enjoying cooking. Or I'm not going to do exotic traveling anymore. You know, I'll be happy to stay closer to home. Or so we're finding those two things. So if you're in the travel business, you don't want to hear this. If you're in the mm-hmm. restaurant business, you don't want to hear this. If you're in the theater business, it's a um, and then uh, also, do you think you'll work at home in the future? And overwhelmingly, people say, you know, working from home turns out to be a lot better than I thought. Wow. Or, um, uh, I support online education. I'll continue to do that. In other words, you see some of the shifts that some will stick, some won't. You know, I talked to a group about these findings, and one person says, well, you know, that sounds a little bit like a drunk the next morning swearing that they're gonna, never going to have alcohol again. And that might be true here. So we say this, but will it really, will we see this in, in behavior? I have no idea. That That is the question. Is it is it just uh, the talk of the night? You know, there's an Arabic saying that's the talk of the night amounts to nothing in the morning. Um, meaning that, you know, yeah. once, the, you know, we're going to do this, we're going to do that. And, you know, I'm going to, going to, going to, going to, and the morning comes, you're like, nah. So that, that's the question. But <laughs> we have to go to a break right now. Um, but stay tuned for the conclusion of this conversation with Dr. James Pennebaker, where we're going to take the next step in the conversation and talk about how we can apply this to our life. How can we apply uh, some of his research to processing our own traumatic experiences that many people are going through right now across the world today. Also, I love to hear your questions. Please WhatsApp me at plus one two zero two nine two two zero two two zero. WhatsApp me and I would love to answer your questions. And if you send me a voicemail, I will answer your questions right here on the show. My book, Anchored, The Discipline to Stop Drifting is out. Please go and get the book. It was written in a time of my life where everything seemed to be falling apart. And I began writing and I found these principles that was able to anchor anchor my life in. And I'm consistently going back to this book. I'm consistently going back to these principles on a weekly or a daily basis to help move forward, to, to break out of this feeling of being stuck, to break out of this feeling of the mundane and actually reach my goals and live the life that I feel called to live. And I'm sure that you want that too. Otherwise, you wouldn't be here. That's all for this episode. Roll over to the second part of the conversation with Dr. Pennebaker. Remember, you are a change maker. Go out, pursue truth, and own the future. <laughs>